Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, June 10th, we are studying Romans chapter 16, verses 1 through 16. St. Paul gives greetings to numerous Christians there in Rome. There are a lot of names. Perhaps we're tempted to breeze through this passage, but if we do, we will miss a great deal. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Luke Zimmerman. Pastor Zimmerman serves at Calvary Evangelical Lutheran Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. Pastor Zimmerman, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Good to be back. Glad to speak with you, and we'll take a look at this passage in Romans and kind of see what uh, Paul is going to be talking about, or perhaps you say talking to. That's right. So, Pastor Zimmerman, this is one of those sections in the epistles. We, we see sections similar to this throughout Paul's epistles, and it's one where we don't know all these names. Sometimes we can't pronounce them very well. We don't always know who these people are. It seems like something that we could just sort of breeze through. There's not going to be much here. What do we miss if we do that with the section like this? Well, part of what we miss is kind of learning the reality um, of the church, that the church is made up of people whom the Lord has called to be his, and he knows them by name. So at the very least, these are all individuals who are Christians. They are people whom God has called to be his own, placed his name on them, given them an identity, and they are our brothers and sisters in the faith. We will actually meet all these people uh, when we enter into the life of the world to come. So at the very least, there's that. Also, by taking a look at this list of believers and what Paul says about them and some of the activities that they were involved in, we get to see a portrait of the first century church. We get to learn uh, something about who made up the church and what the church was doing. And so we get to kind of understand uh, how the church in the first century functioned. Now, it's not a complete uh, portrait. Um, it, it's, not, it's not like reading, um, you know, minutes of a meeting, and you can kind of uh, put that together and say, here is a blow-by-blow, minute-by-minute accounting. It's not a narrative like the Acts of the Apostles, which gives us a bit more detail. But we do get to learn something about how the church operated and this whole network of individuals who were interacting with the apostles that Christ sent into the world. 
And that's something that if you just breeze through this or skip it over, and I know I've been tempted to do that before, you know, you'd be teaching on one of these layers of Paul and you kind of get to it and, oh yeah, and here's a, whole, a list of people he says to say hello to. <laughs> and uh, maybe you give that, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes in a, in a Bible study and you had spent, you know, you know, 10, 12, 15 weeks on all the rest of Romans. And so we're, we're guilty of that. Um, but we are, we are given some advice uh, by some of our forefathers in the faith who, who talk about this being a bit of a treasure. Uh, John Chrysostom, one of the teachers uh, in the early church, you know, mentions that. He talks about commentators who just kind of like hurry over this part of the, of the epistle because they think it's just like not important at all. And, and he says they even do that with the genealogies in, in the Gospels, like in Matthew and Luke. Um, but there is some gold to be mined. There are some nuggets in here, and uh, hopefully we can uh, pull some of those out in our conversation. Yeah, there really is, and, and we'll discover that as we go on. There are things that you would miss if you don't dig in. I, I like the, the picture that you've painted here, that this really lets us— see that picture of the church. It, it reminds us that these are real flesh and blood people that Paul is writing to. It's not some sort of imaginary thing. These are these are people as real as I think I, I think it was a pastor who once compared a section like this to the page in your bulletin, usually, at least in ours, it's toward the back that lists the servants for that particular Sunday. Here are your elders, here are your ushers, here are your mm -hmm. acolytes, here's the altar guild, here's the organist, and all those. And and that page may not have a lot of meaning to a visitor, perhaps. They may look through it and just sort of, okay, that's nice. But for that congregation, it has tons of meaning. For that pastor, it has tons of meaning. And as you pointed out rightly, for the Lord, these are his people, the ones that he has called by name. And so seeing a a text like this really puts flesh and, and blood on the letter that Paul is writing. And and one more thing of introduction just before we, we get into it. This is a this is a congregation that Paul has not visited personally yet, and he's going to name quite a few people. What do we glean from that? Well, this this is one of the more interesting things when we were as looking through this and, and prepping for our conversation today. Um you do have some of the people listed that Paul had already interacted with. Uh, but there's a whole lot of people that he had never actually met in person, and yet he knows things about them. And so you're, you really have kind of two things that we can glean from that. One is there seems to be an awful lot of mobility in the early church. And sometimes we can get lulled into the idea. It's like, well, they don't have modern transportation they don't have modern communication you know there, there, there's no mobile phones you don't have like plane travel and things like that and so everything was kind of like locked into maybe you knew stuff in a 10 mile radius and that's it mm. well this gives us a different perspective that you do have people bouncing around and not just paul bouncing around the mediterranean but some of the uh, other leaders or prominent figures within the early church. And then secondly, there has to be some sort of intercommunication going on. 
um, that that just because you might belong to the church in Rome doesn't mean you know nothing about the church in Ephesus or Corinth or Philippi or other places, or at least the leaders of the congregation seem to know things about them. The, at least the apostles do. And, and that's something that, you know, I, I can think of uh, some of my neighboring congregations. Now, out here in the in the mid-Atlantic, we're, we're a bit uh, sparser, uh, Missouri Synod parishes. But I've got parishes that are like 25 miles away, another is 40 or 50 miles away, uh, and then you go a bit farther than that. But uh, some of them, I really couldn't say that I know really anyone. I might know the pastor, but that's it. Hmm. Here you've got Paul. He's like, I, I actually know some of your um, some of your members, perhaps or prominent members, but it, it, it's, uh, it, it shows a familiarity, even if uh, Paul has not stepped foot in Rome yet, hmm. which he hadn't. Hmm. That, that last point is, I think, a, a very telling point in terms of the way that, just the world that we live in, that we do tend to look down on ages past that we have surpassed them in, in many ways. And because of that, somehow, because we have a, a phone in our pockets, and we're having this conversation on the phone right now, Pastor Zimmerman, that that makes us somehow superior to those previous cultures. And yet, as you pointed out, and this is true for me too, that I, I know the pastors of the surrounding congregations, but I don't know all the members that well. There are some that I do, certainly, and I treasure those connections that I've made. But I, I don't necessarily—could uh, I write a letter like this to a, a neighboring church or a church, you know, in, in Pennsylvania? Probably not. And so to, to see that, that mutual love that the church held for each other and their ability to communicate with each other does give us a greater appreciation of the epistles that Paul writes, the book of Acts, and for that that church, so that we recognize our partnership with them, the continuation of the gospel that was preached then, that's been preached now. It, it really is. This is the more we talk, Pastor Zimmerman, the more excited I get to look at this text. So let's let's go ahead and, and read. And, and please forgive my pronunciations. I will do the best that I can. This is Romans chapter 16, beginning at verse 1. Paul writes, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sencrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Eponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apellus, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord. Trephania and Trephosa. Greet beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, 
Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. That is the text for today, Romans 16, verses 1 through 16. All right, we made it through all those names, Pastor Zimmerman, and there's some good yes, ones. Yes, you did. Yeah, <laughs> this, is, this is not a text that I read out loud regularly. So, And these are, well, and we'll, we'll get to this, actually. The pronunciation of these names, these names actually do, as you said, tell us something about who is in the church. Maybe that's a, a place to start before we dig into individual names. There's a variety of names here, a variety of, of nationalities, aren't there? Yes, there are. And that's, that's actually probably the best jumping off point. Um, because with this list of names, you do see um, a reflection of the cosmopolitan nature of the church. Um, of course, we have celebrated Pentecost just recently. And so, you know, one of the things of Pentecost is you talk about the the gospel going out to all nations. Uh, of course, most of the most of the people at Pentecost, a lot of them were of Jewish descent, and they had been scattered across the Mediterranean. But as you read later through the Acts of the Apostles, you start to see how the church moves away from just descendants, you know, physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to literally people of all nations from, from different ethnicities. And here in the list of these um, names in Romans 16, you've got... Um, kind of Jewish names, you've got uh, Greek names, you know, specifically Greekish. You also have kind of Latin-based names in here, which, of course, that would make sense uh, with a church based in Rome. Um, you even have uh, one of the women later in uh, verse 12, uh, the beloved Persis, which reflects a, a, a Persian background. But that's the way the church is. Uh, the work of Christ does fulfill all the promises to the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but it's for more. It's for the entire world. And so the church is going to reflect that uh, multi-ethnic nature of, of humanity. And so that these of all different ethnicities are brought into this one holy nation, one holy people, of God, and you see evidence of that even in this uh, list of greetings. And I think not only in terms of nationality, but also in terms of social standing as well. I mean, we've got Phoebe here first, who is said to have been a patron for many, and we'll we'll talk about that. But we've also got ones who are who are called prisoners. We, we've got ones that are probably slaves. So not only do we have mm -hmm. a variety of nationalities, but we've got all kinds of social standing as well. You Again, you see the, the picture of the church reflected just as you read the names, and particularly as you read them out loud. You, you see what the church is. It's, it's a wonderful thing. Yeah, it is. And you talk about what actually like uh, really kind of turned the world upside down. Is, is one of the descriptions of the church in the book of Acts. And, and it's not just there. You see that across, uh, across the world where, where Christianity had gone in uh, to different places as the mission would extend you know, down through the centuries and through kind of the entire globe and how there are values and, and things that we hold dear 
uh, because they are what God himself has established. And they do challenge some of the social arrangements that that uh, societies had. Uh, we, we talk about that even um, kind of more modern example, uh, a little familiarity with the work of like the church in India and, and the disruption to like the caste system and things like that. Uh, but but, you know, while that may have been 18th, 19th, 20th century, 21st century now, you're seeing it in the first century here even uh, uh, amongst the Romans and the other Mediterranean societies. Mm. And and also, too, and I realize we haven't said this yet, but this will be a good jumping-off point into the text itself, not only different nationalities, not only different social standings, but also both men and women. And in fact, it is it is a woman who is mentioned first here, greeted first by Paul, our sister Phoebe. He greets in verse 1. Now, this is going to be one of the names, as we go through this list, Pastor Zimmerman, we're going to find out that some of these names we can say a lot about, and some of them we can't say much more except that's a Christian at the church in Rome. Phoebe's going to be one that we can say a little bit more about because Paul says more about her. Start telling us about Phoebe, the, per- the first person Paul greets there in Rome. Sure. Uh, I think you can notice that in the greetings that uh, Paul seems to start with the more familiar, and then as we go through it, it's, it becomes maybe a little less familiar. But here Phoebe is someone that he, uh, Paul knows well. Uh, he speaks of her as a servant of the church at St. and that is one of the port cities for Corinth. Um, the assumption uh, based on the text in Romans, is that Paul is writing from Corinth. You'll you'll get to that in the uh, next uh, the next session uh, when you get the kind of the closing statements in, in chapter sixteen. So Phoebe is affiliated with this church um, in Corinth. You know, kind of the greater Corinth metropolitan area, if you will. Um, and she is someone who actually is working within the church, uh, a, a, a diaconess, a servant, someone who is doing uh, Christ's work. Now, what exactly that is, we don't know. However, we understand from Paul's uh, statement that she has been a patron, which means that's a supporter. Someone who, I mean, and when we're talking about supporting, we're probably talking about maybe that part of the stewardship stuff that we sometimes hesitate to talk about. Yeah, the treasure part, you know, the, with the physical, physical things. Um, even more interestingly is she is traveling. She's traveling, the assumption, and, and, and it's uh, not much of an assumption, uh, to Rome. Because the instructions are that the Roman church is to welcome her. The Roman church, according to verse 2, is to help her. Now, what that is going to be, like what is being helped or what her task is, is not stated specifically. However, there's a very good possibility that Phoebe is involved with the mission that Paul wants to carry out. Uh, We see that in the previous chapter that Paul wants to go to Rome, but Paul's goal is not to go to Rome and just stay there, but rather to go to Rome, find support to jump off for more missions actually further west into Spain. You see that in chapter 15, verse 24. And so perhaps Phoebe is being involved 
in some way of like delivering that message. And like, maybe this is what Paul needs. Here's how we supported his mission out of Macedonia, out, out of Corinth. So at some, or Achaia, I guess that would be Corinth. Uh, Philippi would be Macedonia. Um, so there is something involved. There's some sort of task that Phoebe has, and probably as she is called a servant of the church at St. Creai, that she is to be welcomed in a way worthy of the saints, that she is to get whatever help she needs from you, and Paul's writing to Christians, that it has something to do with the church's work. And of course, with much of Paul's discussion of the church's work, uh, mission is is uh, one of the prominent ones. Hmm. So again, to and I, I probably should correct what I said earlier, Phoebe's not there in Rome yet, but she's on her mm-hmm. way to Rome, and Paul is commending her to them, or maybe introducing her to them, and as as one who is a servant, as one who is a patron, as one who is to be welcomed in the name of the Lord. And that's, you know, Pastor, Pastor Zimmerman, that's something else that stands out throughout this. How often does Paul say, I greet this person or welcome this person in the Lord or in Christ Jesus. The Lord Jesus, he is the connecting point of all of of these people who are named here. And and Phoebe being the first, the one who is to be welcomed and to be received, to be given whatever help, probably financial help like you're talking about. And I think, again, we don't know this for a fact, but to imagine that she is involved in Paul's plans to eventually get to Rome and then from Rome to Spain, that does make a lot of sense with what Paul has been doing in the book of Acts and what he's laid out here in the letter to the Romans already. Now, one thing that, that we I think we can touch on briefly here, and, and maybe we'll get into this more as the list continues, is the role of, of women in this list. Perhaps it seems a bit surprising that a woman would play such a prominent role, particularly in the ancient world, but Paul puts Phoebe right here at the beginning. Yeah, there's probably the um, that Phoebe is probably the one actually carrying the letter <laughs> to Rome. <laughs> so that's kind of important, too. You know, who is this woman who's shown up and why does she have this letter from an apostle? That's a great question. Um, but but it's also it's also indicative of um, something that had already happened uh, in Christ's own ministry. So you read like in the Gospels, you read like uh, Luke chapter 8, where there were women who uh, received Christ's help, uh, you know, his gospel, but also like, you know, the miracles that he performed, and they became people who financially supported him and his ministry. You have uh, examples in the book of Acts where like Peter uh, involved with Dorcas, who is a woman of great generosity, that the faith that's been passed on to her and she holds becomes living and active in what she does. Uh, you have Paul in Philippi, where he, uh, uh, you know, like the real kind of like first sort of like converts, if you will, is, is Lydia, uh, a, a, a uh, merchant woman, uh, what she is involved in like purple uh, uh, fabric making the the dyeing process of of uh, fabric, um, and these individuals become important in the life of a congregation or assembly of disciples, gathering of disciples, 
uh, clustered in these various cities and places where the church is being extended, including uh, even being people who host the churches, host the gatherings. Um, and sometimes, and you will see this uh, in history, sometimes the women were the first converts. And they also bring their husbands along with them, hopefully. <laughs> right. Uh, but you do see that. Right. So this isn't this is not unique then in the in the history of the church, or at least it's not without precedent that there are there are other examples mm -hmm. of of a Phoebe and other places. So, Pastor Zimmerman, we got about two minutes here on this side of sure. the break, just to to think about this a little bit as as this is putting flesh and blood on the first century church for us. What what might a Phoebe look like in the church today? That's that's an interesting question. Um, but some of it, you would say, is at the very least, we actually call for people to support financially uh, the work that the church does. We ask people to make contributions. We've also noted that, like, often when the churches are planted, so, so and, and that's a really good uh, idea, is we're looking at the first century church, and often you're looking at churches that have been extant for maybe a couple decades at most, that, that there are individuals who become the, the providers of places for the gospel to be preached and proclaimed and taught. Um, even like in my own congregation's history, that, that's how it started, with the gathering of people uh, in an individual's home. And then those first like families are the ones who actually – uh, pay for like the building to be put up. So there's that kind of uh, patronage that, that happens. It's also kind of interesting that we note that one of the great funders of the church's mission is our uh, LWML groups, mm. societies. Mm. Um, not without reason. They see that example. Uh, they have benefited from receiving the gospel, and then they serve by using the gifts that Christ has given to them uh, to carry out another work that might not be in their own congregation, might be in other places, but very frequently is within their own congregations or close by, uh, like close missions, home missions, if you will. And we have seen that. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFUO. We're going to take a short break, but we will be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back 
to Sharper Iron on this Wednesday, June 10th. We are looking at Romans chapter 16, verses 1 through 16, with Pastor Luke Zimmerman of Calvary Lutheran, Calvary Evangelical Lutheran Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. Pastor Zimmerman, prior to the break, we talked about Phoebe. That brings us up to verse 3. Prissa and Aquila are the next people mentioned, and I think these are going to be a bit more familiar names to readers of the New Testament, though generally they are named Priscilla and Aquila. Tell us about these two. All right, so Priscilla and Aquila, or here rendered as Prisca and Aquila, are individuals that Paul uh, met on his missionary journeys. Uh, in fact, we see them listed uh, very specifically in Acts chapter 18. We even get a little bit of a background of uh, Priscilla and Aquila in Acts 18. We, we learn that they had been in Italy. We learn that they had to leave because the Emperor Claudius was banning uh, Jews or like uh, exiling them or, or kind of pushing them out. For what reason, you know, that, that's with Claudius, um, but probably nothing really good. Um, we also learned that they are tent makers, and Paul had that same trade. We learn that they are members of a synagogue uh, who had come to Corinth, um, and they are people that received Paul. In fact, uh, Paul stays with them. So, so this, these are people that, that, that Paul knows actually quite well. That's so when he calls them fellow workers in Christ Jesus in verse 3, now, definitely, he knows what he's talking about because he's been working with them. Um, we also get to see some of the interactions that Priscilla and Aquila have with people other than Paul. Because we re read further in Acts, uh, the book of Acts, and we see that they encounter Apollos in, in Ephesus. Uh, they support Apollos going to Corinth. And uh, they want to get Apollos straightened out a bit first before they send him off, off to Corinth, which, which is good. So these tend to be kind of veteran Christians, which is nifty to see. Um, and because of that kind of work and interactions around Asia Minor and, um, you know, modern Greece, you have their efforts, their activities benefiting Gentiles. Because these are the places where the Gentile Christians become, you know, dominant. Yes, you have some of them in Antioch, as you read in Acts, but it's really when the mission starts going over to Asia Minor, so modern-day Turkey, and then in Greece and, and Macedonia, because that portion of, of the world, you really see the explosion of Christianity among Gentiles. And so when Paul says, um, uh, you know, I give thanks for them, but it's also the church, all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks for them. You know, he's speaking about uh, settings where you had their work benefiting these people who are not descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but are being brought into this one church. Um, and Rome will be a place where 
as we noted earlier in our in our broadcast, um, that this cosmopolitan nature of the church is seen, uh, high Gentile uh, involvement. Hmm. So there's Prissa or Priscilla and Aquila. Mm-hmm. The next folks that are greeted, verses five and six, you've got Eponidas. He's said to be the first convert to Christ in Asia, and you've also got Mary, who's worked hard for you. Tell us about these two. So Eponidas uh, is uh, just mentioned. <laughs> uh, uh, these are not people that we see in like the Book of Acts. Mm-hmm. However, we do know that Paul worked in what is called Asia. So, so what is called Asia uh, to the ancient Romans is not all the continent. It's really what we call like the western part of modern day Turkey. So it, it's pretty minimal. Um, but there you have. Uh, a person who was a convert, or literally, uh, the word is uh, aparche, which kind of means like the first fruits, kind of the first harvest, if you will. So not really uh, a, a person who you was like an Old Testament believer, so a believer that the Messiah would come and then receives the news, yes, the Messiah came as Jesus of Nazareth. He did, you know, God did all these mighty works through him. He died and rose but rather a person who might not have any familiarity with that and, it, and, it, and is brought uh, from a Gentile background into, uh, into the church. Um, and Eponidas, you can tell by his name, that, that's definitely a Gentile name. You compare that to like Mary, um, and Mary is definitely like a, a Hebrewish name, you know, Miriam, you know, that, 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 uh, that kind of background. So you have these people who are involved in Rome, and they are of different ethnicities here, which which you note. Right, and, and of course, I mean, Mary, that's how many Marys are there in the <laughs> right. Bible, right? So, Mary, 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 and the other Mary. That's right, like. that's right. So here, <laughs> Here's an even, even, and another Mary, yes. I guess you might have to say. Yes, yes. So after after these two, in verse 7, two, two names that come up that are, are spoken a little bit greater detail, you've got Andronicus and Junia. Tell us about these two. All right, so Andronicus and Junia are listed here, and we note already um, something about them, because the, the word that or term that comes right after the listing of their names is, uh, as the ESV renders it, my kinsmen, um, the, the, the Sunganites, uh, of the same like um, a generation, if you will, the same line, the same uh, ethnicity. In fact, it's the uh, uh, the word in um, Luke one that gets translated. Uh, Elizabeth, your relative, is also with child when uh, the angel Gabriel speaks to Mary. Um, so, so you have here already a description that they are people of a, a Jewish background. Uh, ethnic, you know, ethnically. Also, what's interesting is the very last statement about them in verse 7. They were in Christ before me. Now, that's a really interesting phrase, because we know all about uh, Paul's conversion, the Damascus Road experience, and we know it's fairly early. You know, it's only a matter of a few years after Christ ascends into heaven and Pentecost happens, and you have that mission in Jerusalem that extends out to Judea, and it's moving out to Samaria. And that's relatively quickly. 
And then you have Paul's conversion. But here Paul says these two individuals were in Christ before me, which would indicate they were believers before Paul was a believer. And in fact, as I was reading it, you, you know, you kind of like wonder, it's like, might those individuals be among the 500 that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians, right? The, the, you had that the Christ appeared uh, to the 500 all at once, and some of them are still living. Might these be individuals who were there, who saw the risen Jesus? I mean, if, if so, that, that, that's, I mean, uh, and, you know, there's a very good chance of it. Um, even if they didn't, they are definitely uh, perhaps, you know, Pentecost Christians, you know, so, so, so early in, in the game. Um, they are also known to the apostles. At least that's the way the ESV renders it. This is one of those places that's a little, uh, we got translations all over the place of uh, what, how to render a Greek phrase into English. Um, you know, are they well known or of note among the apostles? Are they outstanding among the apostles? And there's a lot of ink that could be spilled on that. But at the very least, they are within, if you would say, you've got like the 12, right? And then you talk about maybe like concentric circles, if you will, of like within the church. They are people who are, who are you know, they're not just like random pew sitter, if you will. Of course, they really didn't have pews back then. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> um, they are definitely people of some... Um, I'm going to use the term status, if you will, mm. within in the church. Um, one of the real questions, though, is uh, with the with the with the with uh, Junia is like, is Junia a man or a woman? And uh, and that gets into the issue of how do you um, translate the word? And when you have all the letters looking the same, uh, that it could be masculine or feminine. And then you have to figure out whether accent marks or not and things like that, which mm. is, uh, uh, you know, really into the details of the Greek language. Um, you know, my kind of thought is they're probably, they're probably just husband and wife. They're, they're, mm. they're, um, and, and you did see that uh, kind of speaking about them uh, within uh, like the early church, kind of speaking of them as husband-wife couples. Uh, so similar to Priscilla and Aquila yeah. in mm -hmm. verse 3, perhaps Andronicus and Junia are another Priscilla. And although, if that is if that is the case, then Priscilla and Aquila is, is listed wife-husband. This would be listed <laughs> husband-wife. And I mean, but in any case, that, that may be yeah. a bit farther. But, and, and just briefly, Pastor Zimmerman, because this, this is there, the reason that this is touchy for some has to do with the matter of, of women's ordination, that some would, would mm -hmm. like to take this verse that see Junia as a woman, which, as you said, is, is very likely, and then translate it that she is one of the apostles and use that as a springboard for women's ordination. That's, mm -hmm. that's the reason this gets a little touchy. And I think, that, I mean, at least the initial response that I would have to that sort of interpretation is we shouldn't allow a descriptive text of scripture, one that's telling us who people are, to go against or contradict a very clear prescriptive text of scripture, for example, from 1 Corinthians 14, 
or from 1 Timothy chapter 2 that teach us about the pastoral office very directly. Here we've got a very unclear passage. There we've got very clear passages. Let's let the clear passages speak to the issues they speak on and not be clouded by things that are, frankly, cloudy. Yeah, that's a good way of uh, uh, talking about it. And I I think it's interesting um, that you do have Bible commentators, you know, picking picking that up, that there are things that, you know, Paul writes about, uh, like in 1 Corinthians 11 and 14, 1 Timothy 2, um, the way he speaks about uh, husbands and wives within households and, 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 and is there, Colossians 3, Ephesians 5, Titus 2, um, and also has Phoebe be the one delivering the letter to Corinth that she's a patron of the church. Um, and you, know, you could also have um, a person, a woman like Junia, being a prominent uh, Christian. Uh, you also have Prisca and Aquila, for example, who also teach Apollos, right? I mean, that's that's in the book of Acts. So you do have, you know, these things which happen in the narrative of the New Testament. You also have very uh, prescriptive statements made by the apostles. And then you have um, the ability to actually, like, harmonize the two rather than pitting them against each other, which is, I think, what they want to do. Where, or unfortunately, some people want to do, um, and 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 you know I don't want to be uncharitable, but I think that's actually what 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 kind of happens is there sometimes could be an agenda, and you'd be like, where can I find this uh, uh, within the scriptures, as opposed to like um, almost kind of like receiving it, throwing it all in the hopper, and then kind of harmonizing what's there. Right. I mean, I, I think this is the the beauty of at least for me, the beauty of being a Lutheran is that I can simply believe what the scriptures say in both places and let them speak to me so that I don't need to come to the text with some kind of agenda, be looking here for a way to overthrow what I don't like something somewhere else. And again, not to be uncharitable, but but this text cannot be used to overthrow what Paul says elsewhere. What he writes in both places need to be true. I think we can simply believe both of them without bringing, as you said, our outside agendas to the text. Rather, let the text let the text set the agenda for us. Mm-hmm. So with, with that, because I, I want to keep going, it's amazing yeah, how, yeah. how far we've, we, you know, we've got like 13 minutes <laughs> left here, and we've still got over half the text left. And, and some more names, some of these we won't be able to say quite as much about. After Andronicus and Junia, maybe husband and wife. We get in verse 8, Ampliatus. We get in verse mm-hmm. 9, Urbanus. Verse, and also, and the beloved Stachus. And then let's take Apellus as well, the beginning of verse 10. Take those names for us. Sure. There's not much there in terms of, uh, um, you know, background, other than Paul is speaking positively about them. He knows something about them. He's familiar with them, because he calls Alpleotus my beloved in the Lord. He calls Urbanus our fellow worker in Christ. He calls Stachus my beloved. He calls Apollos as someone who is approved in Christ, which means there is favorable judgment being given about these individuals, and you can't give judgment favorable or unfavorable over people you do not know. 
We're always taught that, right? You, 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 how, how can you evaluate someone that you've never met? Uh, but here you have Paul commending them. There is something that has happened in some interaction of these individuals with Paul that he has a history with them. And he knows tasks that they're doing or uh, vocations that they have or assignments they've been given uh, or, or their um, you know, kind of closeness maybe with other disciples in other places. And Paul speaks about those. And that shows the network. Again, we talked about that earlier uh, in, our, in our broadcast, that there's you know, already a network that's been developed over these about two decades, if you will, of the, of the church's uh, uh, mission going on, um, uh, maybe up to three decades of the church's mission going on. After we get those names, then we get a few broader groups, perhaps. Paul says, as it's translated in the ESV, greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus, and then my kinsman Herodian, and those who belong to the family of Narcissus. So he's greeting larger groups at a time here. Yes. So again, um, that uh, Herodian being mentioned as a kinsman, that's the same, that's the same uh, word as in uh, verse 7 with Adronicus and uh, Junia. Uh, so you have these people, though, mentioned uh, as belonging to the family. And, and um, unfortunately, this is where, again, bringing Greek into English, sometimes you have to supply words for idiom. It's because it's literally kind of like those from Aristobulus or those from or of Narcissus. Um, and so perhaps when we talk about family as, as a way of trying to bring that idiom into, into English, we have the idea of the family being the nuclear family, right? Husband, wife, kids, maybe extended family. But here it might actually be better to suggest it being a more of a household than a family. So not necessarily blood relatives, but people who are within a similar household, which would include, yes, the relatives, but it would also include like servants and slaves. Kind of like uh, in the small catechism where Luther talks about the head of the household teaching. Mm -hmm. It's not just the head of the household, like the father teaching children. It would also be you understand that like the residential servants also learn these things. And so here you're probably dealing with, like, again, we talked about the different social strata yeah. within the church, talk about people who are uh, within um, different economic strata as being servants and slaves. Also, and, uh, to grab the end of verse 11, interesting where he talks about those uh, connected with Narcissus. He says, greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. And that might also give us a kind of a, uh, a portrait of the church that, especially in the first century, you will have households, and of course it's the same now in the 21st century, <laughs> of um, those of different faiths. So you might have some in the household who are Christians, some in the household who might be what we call Jews, some in the household who might be pagan or belonging to, like, the Roman religions. Mm. And it's a mixed bag mm. uh, under one roof or maybe series of roofs, mm. you know, in a, in a large housing complex. 
Right, so there's a, a picture of the first century church that's not all that different from the picture of the church that we have today, of these of these mixed households. That's, a, that's an excellent point. Verse 12 lists three people, Trophena, Trophosa, Persis, all of whom are identified according to the work that they've done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they are all women. Uh, they're all uh, feminine uh, names. And again, they are people doing work, which, again, Paul doesn't define what that is, okay? Um, But then again, if you would look at um, our congregations, and, you know, it's not not my bias to, to call, like, everything, like, a ministry, but I know some congregations do that, and, and this is not the place to you know discuss whether that's the best term or, or not. But when we use that term or we use like the idea of work within the church, we have a whole lot of different categories, even within our modern congregations of what we're talking about. It could be anyone involved with like property. It could be people involved in charitable activities. It could be people involved in like the educational uh, work. It could be people involved in keeping the finances, right? It's all work, though, which is being done for Christ. It's all efforts being put in to help Christ's congregation function and carry out its mission and purpose within this real world, dealing with real concrete people and using the elements of this world to get things done. Mm. And that is work. Mm. We've got like six minutes left, Pastor Zimmerman. And so I just want to make sure. So the rest of the names, verses 13 through 15, there's not a ton there, unless you want to say a bit about Rufus, because I think there's there's a bit to say there. And because I want to make sure we get to talk about the Holy Kiss and also just a a little bit of time, hopefully for wrap-up. So any names that you want to highlight yet? Rufus is the one I would highlight. Uh, the rest of them are just kind of a series of names of, of various, uh, um, well, towards the end, they're mostly all Greekish, uh, generally, names. Rufus, though, is, we're not quite sure who he is, but Paul calls him chosen or elect in the Lord. And, and obviously, this is not like election in the sense of he's been called to be a believer. Paul has dealt with that earlier in Romans and and in his other epistles, but probably someone with a significant status, a significant calling. Um, And, of course, the only other Rufus we notice in the New Testament are the sons of Simon of Cyrene, the one who carried the cross of Jesus uh, in Mark's Gospel, Mark 15. And you have Simon is noted as having two sons, uh, Rufus, uh, and what Alexander, right? Mm. So, might this be that Rufus? Oh, I'd like to think it is, <laughs> and uh, and um, that wouldn't be too surprising if it is. Right, it doesn't have to be, but it, it sure it would make a be. lot of sense if it would. I mean, and that that explains perhaps if it is the same Rufus. That explains why it's why he would be mentioned in both places. I mean, it, it stands uh-huh. out particularly in Mark that Simon of Cyrene is listed as having these two sons. Well, why is he given that there in Mark? Perhaps it's because this Rufus is a well-known member of the church in Rome. So, Pastor, uh, Pastor Zimmerman, I think that uh, just a, a real quick thing, a holy kiss stands out 
to us all the time, but especially during a pandemic. <laughs> what <Yeah. laughs> What is this matter of greeting one another with a holy kiss? Yeah, well, we can't even do the holy handshake. That's right. So, <laughs> but holy kiss, it's, it's greetings um, and, and, and showing the um, familiarity. You don't kiss the people you don't know. That gets you in trouble <laughs> real quickly. Um, also, like the idea uh, when, when Judas betrays Jesus, remember, it, that's the sign. Judas Iscariot says, you know, the one, the one I kiss, that's the one. That, that's, uh, and, and this is how you would uh, greet individuals. Um, and probably that there is a liturgical function in here, that there is an expression of a bond and harmony and familiarity with each other. And I like that term familiarity because it's got that familial root. You know, these are our brothers and sisters. And those are the people like when we go and visit our relatives. I know my grandmother, my uh, sainted grandmother, she always had that, you know, always before you left, at least, you know, you you always kissed grandma. And there is something to that of expressing that bond. And we are we are with each other. And I think that's what's being carried here too. Mm. And and any liturgical function that I mean that that's also a good point to make. And and perhaps we'll pick that up a bit tomorrow with the text mm-hmm. as how this might have been used in terms of the liturgy. This this matter of the holy kiss could be a part of that as well. Pastor sure. Zimmerman, we got two minutes left here. We've talked a lot a lot of names, names that very easily will slip from our minds after we're we're done here today. What help help us wrap things up and and hold on to what we need those gold nuggets from this text. So gold nuggets, I would say, getting some understanding about how the first century church was active and organized. Don't have like the the bias and arrogance of modernity, saying, "Oh, we are so much better. We're so much <laughs> uh, technologically advanced, and so we know all. We can function great." You know. You have a real active, dynamic church in the first century, sometimes actually showing a familiarity and activity that might actually be superior to us. And maybe we ought to be guided by that. The other thing is also noting just how many people are involved with the church's activity. It's, it's the body of Christ has all sorts of different members and they all have different functions, and together the body works, the body functions. And it would be curious if we would make names in our congregation, if I had a list, you know, who are the people that greetings would be extended to here in Mechanicsburg, um, I could probably come up with a list like this. And maybe we ought to do that and note all the people who are using their, their, uh, their gifts that, that the God has granted uh, for eternal good, for, for, for Christ's mission. Pastor Luke Zimmerman is the pastor at Calvary Evangelical Lutheran Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, helping us this morning with Romans chapter 16, verses 1 through 16. Pastor Zimmerman, thank you for your time today. You're very welcome. Glad to do it. A list of names, names that maybe we don't recognize, but names that are known to the Lord and names that are brothers and sisters in Christ to us, and therefore worth our time to listen, to learn, to see that picture of the early church, that church with which we are united in Christ today. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. 
Talk to you again tomorrow.